Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We are going to be continuing on in our series, The Sabbath and the Mark of God, today. And really, we're just going to continue to investigate some church history, to really investigate to see uh, what has transpired over these years, over the early years of the church history, what has brought us to the point that we're at today. And the more we look at history, the more we understand the more we can relate to what is happening, why we've abandoned the things uh, that we were actually commanded to keep, that we were commanded to shamar or protect, as Scripture says. I want to get right to it today. I have a lot to cover, and uh, I actually pulled out a lot, and uh, didn't want to keep you here too late. Um, We're going to go, we were kind of hanging in the second century, if you remember last week, and Today we're going to move into the third century, and there's a gentleman I want to introduce you to, and his name is Victorinus of Ptah, or it's pronounced Ptu. And he was an early Christian theologian, obviously from the third century, a writer. Uh, He's actually mentioned by Jerome. Uh, Most people are familiar with who Jerome is, uh, the Latin father, uh, early church father. Well, this guy, he produced a work called On the Creation of the World. It's his commentary, obviously, as, the, as it alludes to, on the creation account. And what do we know about the creation account? What we know is that it included the Sabbath. When you read what happened in creation, we know the Sabbath was a significant part of the account. Well, I want to show you what he has to say about this. And we're going to begin right here. The sixth day is called the perceive, that is to say, the preparation of the kingdom. Now, this is a phenomenal statement, and I want you to perceive. All that means is preparation day in English. It's just a fancy term for the preparation day. Now, one thing he identifies is amazing here is that the perceive, the preparation day, is all about preparation for the kingdom. See, he's drawing out some deep spiritual context here in regard to the Shabbat, in regard to what the preparation day really is. And so with this statement, it's, it's incredible, and I absolutely am in agreement. Unfortunately, from here, it goes downhill. And this is what we read next. And you know, let the perceive become a rigorous fast. Now, I want to stop right here so that you understand. The Jews... Do not fast on the perceived. They do not fast on Friday. They fast traditionally on Monday and Thursdays. So you can go back even in early Christian writings. You can go back to the Didache, and you see it is Mondays and Thursdays traditionally that they fast. They wouldn't fast on the perceived because they are preparing for the Shabbat. All right? But this is interesting. He says, now let the perceived become a rigorous fast. Why? He tells us, lest we should appear to observe any Sabbath with the Jews. So here we have this vile, okay, vile infectious disease of separation creeping into the church. The separation from Christians from Jews. The separation of Christians from Torah. The separation of Christians from Shabbat. It's starting to metastasize in the church. This is a disease. And he goes on, which Mashiach himself, the Lord of the Sabbath, says by his prophets. In other words, he's going to justify this statement by the prophets that his soul hateth. You remember what we read? Remember how we discovered in the epistle of Barnabas that 
the writer there attempted to justify leaving and forsaking and abandoning the Sabbath by going to Isaiah 1, which is exactly what he is doing. This is exactly what he's doing. He's going to 1, but he's completely distorting it. No, the Lord does not appreciate Sabbath when you, when you mix the holy with the profane. He will not accept it. And so here he says that his soul, so he's going to justify the statement, his soul hates the Sabbath, as so as he acclaims, which Sabbath he in his body abolished. I want you to think about that statement because how many of you have heard that Jesus has abolished the Sabbath? I mean, just by a show of hands, has anyone here heard that? Almost the entire room has got their hands up. Because we've all heard that, that Jesus abolished. Well, look at this. Go back to the third century and you're hearing this. This is the rhetoric that is coming out. So there's, there's really nothing new under the sun. Now, moving on, and I just briefly, let's think about this, you guys. Start putting this in order. We, we were going late first, second, second century. We're into the third century. What happens when you go forth and you're so strong in what you believe you really come off as powerful leader. You could come off as sophisticated, a great Bible scholar. But just think about how this works. And you go out, and what are you doing? You're winning converts. You want people to come to the faith. But then as a part of that faith, you start telling them, well, in regard to the Jews, stay away. Stay away from the Jewish things. Stay away from the Sabbath. Stay away from the feast. You don't want anything to do with those things. And then those converts go out and make other converts and those converts go out and make other converts what happens you have this snowball effect this is this is what is happening early on it's it's starting to grow and then as we get into the fourth century if you remember my lava uh, analogy as we get into the fourth century that lava is going to begin to cool and as it begins to cool it forever changes the landscape of christianity it becomes permanent fixture and the more we dig into today the more we dig into the fourth century we get into this you're going to see that that is true let me introduce you to someone known as eusebius uh, who is from the third into the fourth century prolific prolific bible scholar prolific historian okay and uh obviously a formidable apologist uh, especially in an age that needed it more than anything with this rise of Arianism that was spreading across the church. Well, I want to take you to his work. It's called Historia Ecclesiastica. It's typically called uh, Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History or Church History. And within this commentary, we're going to find that Eusebius addresses the topic of the Shabbat. This is fascinating. Because we've seen all these ways, these different ways that uh, these professed Christians uh, have described why we should abandon the Sabbath, whether it's Isaiah 1, whatever the case may be. We've seen all these different ways that they've tried to justify this move, this abandonment. Eusebius is going to do it a little bit differently. This is really creative, actually. And I want to take you through this and show you what he does. And this is what he says. If anyone should assert that all those who have enjoined the testimony of righteousness from what? From Abraham himself back to the first man were Christians. In fact, if not in name, he would not go beyond the truth. In other words, this is what he's saying. Everyone from Adam 
to Abraham who walked in righteousness, all of them are Christians. Okay, now here's the thing. I agree with it. That's absolutely fundamental fact. That is true. If Yeshua died before the foundation of the world, if he was set apart to do that, there's no question. I will not hesitate to call them Christians. Not for a moment. All right? But look at what happens as we continue, because now he's going to uh, get into this even deeper. And this is what he says. For that which the name indicates, that Christian man, through the knowledge and the teaching of Christ, is distinguished for temperance and righteousness, for patience in life and manly virtue, and for a profession of piety toward the one and only God over all. And listen to this. All that was zealously practiced by them, not less than by us. Isn't that interesting? So he's just bringing this out and saying, I'm showing you evidence. It's very clear. Everything that these righteous men did from Adam to Abraham. Think about these men for a second. You had Abel, righteous man of God. You had Enoch, who walked with God and was not. You had men like Lamech and Noah. Think about these men. And he's saying everything these men did, we're doing today. We're right on the mark with this. Okay? Now he's going to go on to explain what he means by this to justify this statement. They did not care about circumcision of the body. Neither do we. They did not care about observing Sabbaths. Nor do we. I want to stop right here. With Eusebius being at the level he was of a scholar, at the level he was as an apologist and a historian, one would typically expect a little bit more from him in his presentation here, or at least more caution in how he is going to articulate what he just said. In other words, what I'm saying is is this is a careless and reckless statement. Statements that, you know, uh, even modern-day scholars would, would hesitate to make. And what do I mean? Well, let's look at the very first thing he said. They did not care about circumcision of the body. Let me be very clear. That is not a fair statement. That is reckless. And why do I say that? They didn't have it. He didn't go to Noah and say, Noah, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And therefore, receive this, this sign of circumcision. It was never afforded to Noah. That was never given to him. Had it, what do you think he would have done with it? He would have embraced it. He wouldn't have hesitated. He never hesitated. Nothing in Scripture shows that Noah ever hesitated, or any other righteous man, Enoch, that they hesitated to do the will of God, to walk in righteousness. And so when I read this statement, I get extremely concerned. This is a very careless and reckless statement. It is not a fair statement. But then he he comes right next to it, and it gets even worse, and he says... They did not care about observing Sabbaths, nor do we. He's making this as a statement of fact. It is not a fact. He cannot prove it in Scripture. There's not one single solitary verse early on in Genesis anywhere, anywhere after that, to show that this statement is accurate, that they didn't care about the Sabbath. Actually, I will tell you this. I will argue exact opposite. There is evidence that they did care about the Sabbath. You might say, well, Daniel, what do you mean? Well, I'm going to tell you something about Genesis early on, and even in the days of Noah. There is evidence of the eternal nature of Torah. There is evidence of this. Let me share with you. 
Think about Noah when he's commanded to bring the animals on the ark. He said, bring two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal. Isn't that fascinating? Because nowhere is it recorded that said Noah had this Mount Sinai experience and he was downloaded the Torah and he came into covenant. You don't read about any of that. So explain to me how Noah knows between unclean and clean. I'll tell you, relationship. It's relationship with the most high God. What is Torah? Torah is the expression of the character and nature of our God. That's what it is. It's the personality of Yeshua, what he likes, what he doesn't like. And so all these men at the front end, make no mistake, Enoch knew who God was. He knew his character. He knew his expression. He knew what he liked and he didn't like. We see evidence of this. Take it a step further. Abraham. Nowhere will you read anywhere in Scripture that he had a Mount Sinai experience, that he went and met with God and God gave him the Torah. And yet... We know for a fact that that happened in the sense of him being in relationship with Abraham. Because as we come to Isaiah 26, and the Lord's promising, uh, um, uh, uh, promising his son Isaac that his stars are going to be multitude like the, like the stars of heaven. What does he say? I will do this because Abraham kept my voice. He kept my charge. He kept my commandments and my Torah. I mean, we know that. That's Genesis 26. But there's no Mount Sinai experience until Exodus. Think about that. And yet we have evidence that he did have his commandments. And so this is beyond a reckless statement. There's actually evidence to, to argue against what he just said. Continuing on, look at what he says here. They did not avoid certain kinds of food. Neither did they regard the other distinctions which Moses first delivered to their posterity to be observed as symbols. If that was the case, Noah would have never made the distinction between clean and unclean. Would have never happened. And then he says, nor do Christians of the present day do such things. I want you to notice his use of the term Christian. Because for the most part, I'm going to tell you this right now. The way he is using it and the context by which he is using it, it is completely unrecognizable from where it began. Completely unrecognizable. You go to Acts 11, hear me clearly. You go to Acts 11, that term was explicitly referring to Jewish believers. Explicitly. Amen. And so here you have, in Acts 11, it says they were first called Christians in Antioch. And this was all these Jewish believers that had come into the faith that were confessing Yeshua and even being uh, ridiculed by their own. Go to Acts 26, the Apostle Paul. In Acts 26, the term is explicitly, King Agrippa refers to the term to a Jewish believer, to Paul. He was considered a Christian. And then Peter, who is a Jew, who's speaking to other Jews, says, if anyone, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. This is the point. So he's, but he's speaking to other Jews. Think about the statement. The term Christian applies explicitly to Jewish believers. That's how the term first started. Right? The first Christians were Torah observant, kosher eating, Sabbath keeping, Yeshua confessing Jews. It's that simple. But now... The term is crystallizing as we get into the second and third century 
Satan has come in, he has hijacked this term, he's crystallized it into something else that it was never intended to be. The term is now, I mean, let's be honest, the term is now synonymous uh, with those who actually reject biblical observances. They reject Shabbat, they reject Torah, they reject the feast, they reject the food laws. This is what it means today to be a Christian. That's not what it meant in the book of Acts. Is it any wonder why the Jewish people have any time they hear the word Christian, they run for their lives? You don't need the pogroms. You don't need the inquisitions. You don't need crusades to make the Jewish people run for their lives. Because all you need to do is tell them, yeah, that book that God gave you and all the promises within it, yeah, that's done away with. The law is completely done away with. Uh, your Messiah actually abolished it. Jesus abolished those things. And you shouldn't be keeping Sabbath, and you shouldn't be making a distinction between clean and unclean. That will get a Jew to run in the other way. And do you see the effects of Hasatan? Because now he gets a two-for-one. Let's grab all the Gentiles who are coming in to be grafted in Israel, and let's bring them into a land of iniquity instead. Let's get them to reject everything God has for them. And at the same time, we're going to take out the Jews. We're going to take out the Jews from coming and confessing their Messiah. It's a two-for-one. When you think about the strategy involved, it is incredible. It is dark. It is twisted. It's filled with death. It's exactly what Jude said. Certain men have crept in unnoticed, right? And they turned the grace of God into lewdness, total vileness and wickedness. I want to continue on looking at some more history, specifically focusing on this fourth century, because the further we get into this, the more you're going to see why this century is so important, especially in the realm of unification, in the realm of growth. Now, prior to the fourth century, the Christian church was horrifically persecuted. Now, this is no secret. Secular scholars know this. Everyone knows this. The Jews know this. Everyone knows that the Christian church was horrifically persecuted in all the various sects of Christianity, which there were several. And we're not going to get into that. Just know that it was horrifically persecuted. That is until one particular individual rose to power. And this particular individual will be one of the most celebrated, most renowned emperors in the history of Rome, and that is Constantine. When Constantine came to power, I'm going to tell you, for Christians, for Christianity, things were about to change. Constantine is going to provide a a whole new atmosphere for the Christian faith. He's going to give Christianity a whole new platform by which uh, to operate. That platform is going to foster growth. That platform is going to foster unity. And as we come to 313 AD, which Constantine, he came to power in 306. So not long after he comes to power in 313, he calls a special meeting. He has a special meeting in Milan with a gentleman by the name of Licinius. And out of that meeting, we have something known as the Edict of Milan. You're going to want to remember this term, the Edict of Milan, because this term is monumental in Christianity. And given the the magnitude of this event and and what it meant for Christianity, I want to read to you some historical commentary uh, from one of Constantine's advisors. And this is Lactantius. 
And Lactantius was, he was a, a, obviously an advisor to Constantine, but he was also a prolific Christian author, all right? And he records what transpires at this meeting, and I want you to see what is said here. You really need to have a backdrop and appreciation for what happened at Milan because it's so catastrophic in the history of the church. This is what he says. While he, Licinius, and Constantine were councils for the third time, he commanded the following edict for the restoration of the church directed to the president of the province to be promulgated. And this is what it said. When we, Constantine, and Licinius, emperors, had an interview at Milan and conferred together with respect to the good and security of the commonweal, it seemed uh, to us that amongst those that are profitable to mankind in general, the reverence paid to the divinity merited our first and chief attention, and that it was proper that the Christians and all others should have liberty to follow that mode of religion, which to each of them appeared best, so that God, who is seated in heaven, might be benign and propitious to us and to everyone under our government. So, this edict which truly did bring freedom and liberty to the Christians. It did. But it wasn't just about Christians. It was about all religions. They were all to be given this religious freedom, this religious liberty. And the whole concept here is what Constantine is trying to accomplish here is he wanted to foster peace and harmony throughout the land. And I think most of you can appreciate this. Can you not living in America today? Where all religions are offered protection, freedom of religion, right? Got something called the First Amendment? I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of parallel here. Now, continuing on. And therefore, we judge it a solitary measure and one highly consonant to right reason that no man should be denied leave of attaching himself to the rights of Christians, listen, or to whatever other religion his mind directed him. That thus the supreme divinity to whose worship we freely devote ourselves might continue to vouchsafe his favor and beneficence to us. Continuing. For it benefits the well-ordered state and the tranquility of our times that each individual be allowed according to his own choice to worship the divinity and we mean not to derogate aught from the honor due to any religion or its votaries. So here... I just had to share this with you to give you some insight into this edict and, and what it intended to, uh, to accomplish. Because when you understand what Milan was really about, you can understand why there was so much controversy that surrounds Constantine himself. And I mean, he's supposed to be this, uh, we look at this typically as he's supposed to be this incredible Christian warrior. Now, I'm not going to get into it today. I might get into it a little bit in the coming weeks. Uh, but there's, needless to say, there's a ton of controversy that shrouds Constantine. Whether or not, was he truly a Christian himself? Was he really concerned about Christianity? We're not going to get into that. What I do want you to know that isn't controversial whatsoever, I can tell you this. For the first time in the history of Rome, Christians were afforded protection. And they weren't just afforded protection, they were encouraged to grow. They were encouraged to build their, uh, their facilities. 
uh, it's for, for celebrating, for, for gathering together. And what happened out of that is they began to flourish like never before. They did. They started to assemble with the help of Constantine. They got organized. It was unique. And on an ecumenical level, this is a worldwide level, they started to organize like never before. And they started to discuss things like, what are we going to accept as doctrine? What are we going to reject? Who are we going to accept? And who are we going to deem a heretic or, as they would use the word, anathema, that you're to be cut off from Mashiach? And so these are the determinations as these councils come together. Man, this is weighty stuff. This is as heavy as it gets. Let me share with you, just, just so you can get a picture of that Edict of Milan, after the Edict of Milan happened, all the activity that started to come, such as the Council of Ankira. And this was really, this is in Turkey. But that was happened, notice 314. Almost right after the Edict of Milan, they're starting to move. Gather everyone, let's go. And that's natural. Like you can see, that makes sense where we have this gathering going on. Then you have the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Gangra, the Council of Antioch, the Council of Laodicea, the first Council of Constantinople. And there's others that I could show you. But I show you these so that you understand that this is what happened after Milan. This is the platform that Constantine created. And so the church now has the ability to become more and more refined They have the door to become stronger and more unified. And I'm going to tell you, these councils you're looking at were an instrumental part of the development of the Christian church. And because of that, I want to spend just a little bit of time touching on a few of these councils because I want to show you what was discussed. I want to show you what was determined here, and it's going to further help you understand why we are in the place we're at today. Specifically, when you get into things talking about the church's ideology on the feasts or the church's ideology on our very topic, the Shabbat. The first one I want to take you to is the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This was massive. It said traditionally the number was 318 leaders from all the world gathered together for this council. Some scholars today say that was actually as high as 500. I mean, the, the magnitude of this. In fact, this is where we get the Nicene Creed, that amazing, powerful statement of faith. And something you should know about the Nicene Council, what really prompted this, the primary focus of this council was to deal with Arianism, was to deal with the teachings of Arius. All right? This was the primary goal. But having said that, they covered a lot of other things. I mean, if you're going to get this kind of meaning together on an ecumenical level, and you're going to start dictating what's canon, what's canonical law, and what isn't, who's accepted, who's rejected, you're going to want to deal with a lot of things. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, some of these things were very good. They were very biblical. But unfortunately, not everything was. Not everything was biblical. Some of these things are extremely disturbing. And it's like, I I get this picture when I look at this, and you study this council... You get the picture of Satan coming in and just sneaking a little bit of leaven in. Just a little bit. That's all it takes. You know, the statement is you don't, take, you don't need to take a whole bottle of poison. One pill is sufficient. And you look at what was happening here, and this is the scenario. Well, I want to show you 
some of the canonical things that came out of this. And what I want to do is I want to show you Eusebius's recordation of Constantine's declaration to the churches throughout the land in regard to this is what we have determined at the Council of Nicaea. Okay, so this is Constantine addressing the world. And this is what he says. At this meeting, the question concerning the most holy day of Easter was discussed. And it was resolved by united judgment of all present that this feast ought to be kept by all, by all and in every place on one and on the same day. I want to stop here. He is not talking about Passover. I mean, this is not some special term utilized for Passover. You know, Passover goes by different names like the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Easter is not one of them. This is referring to Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, a celebration that was tied explicitly to the spring equinox. And it was only on one day. Well, that's totally contrary to the Jewish manner of Pesach. Why? Because Pesach is seven days long. And it's not just seven days long, but as you get to the second month, in the month of ER, you have the option of celebrating it again if you missed it. And that's just too much. That's apparently too chaotic. They don't want to deal with that. They don't want seven days of the festival. One is sufficient. And they want to make it easier. And so this is the mode. This is where they're going. So this comes up. And he goes on. For what can be more becoming or honorable to us than that this feast from which we date our hopes of immortality should be observed unfailing by all alike? According to one ascertained order and arrangement. You got that? Now, Constantine goes on to describe why this was decided. And this is precious right here. First of all, it appeared unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, we should follow the practice of the Jews. Go again to the common denominator. What was the thrust behind making this decision to abandon the feast of Pesach and grab on to the goddess Ishtar, to grab on to a celebration of Ishtar? It was this. We need to separate from the Jews, this vile, vile cancer of separation. And we can see it again. It keeps rearing its ugly head. You cannot get away from it in church history. And he goes on, who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. It's interesting, I read this passage, I can't but help think what Yeshua said, he who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. This, the, the attack, the vehement attack against the Jewish people and condemning them for sin. Last time I checked, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is just a reality. And just to see the, the seething anti-Semitism and hatred breathing through this, it is the dragon. I'm telling you right now, these are the words of the dragon. For we have it in our power. Now get this. If we abandon their custom, and they're actually saying we're abandoning Passover, to prolong the due observance of this ordinance to future ages by a truer order. Wrap your mind around what was just said. It was unbelievable. It is in our power. It is in our power. We can change this. And if we do it, it will affect the ages to come. He was not 
getting. Look at the church today. They do not keep the Passover. They're keeping Ishtar tied to the spring equinox. This is unbelievable. I mean, you look at this deeper and deeper and it gets scarier and scarier. Which we have preserved from the very day of the passion until the present time. Let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd. For we have received from our Savior a different way. When you think about this, these are the words of the dragon. That's what this is. That's what's moving this. That's the thrust and the power behind this. So on an ecumenical level, they've formally chosen not just to separate from God's people. They've chosen to separate from God's truth, from God's commandments. It's as scary as it gets. And continuing on, we're not done. You should consider not only that the number of churches in these provinces make up a majority, but also that it is right to demand what our reason approves. Look at that, our reason. It's right to demand what our reason approves and that we should have nothing in common with the Jews. To sum up in few words, by the unanimous judgment of all, it has been decided that the most holy festival of Easter or Ishtar should be everywhere celebrated on one and the same day. And it is not seemingly that it is so holy a thing. There should be any division. In other words, what he is saying, your resistance to this is futile. Succumb, submit. You must accept these truths we are presenting. We are the majority. And this is a little bit of intimidation. You might want to read Exodus 23. It tells you not to go with the crowd when that crowd is going to do evil. You don't do it. You stay away. We're going to build upon this, what we're covering here. I want to move ahead a few years to 363 AD to what is called the Council of Laodicea. Now, at this council, there's said to be 60 canons established, canonical laws. Okay, that's a lot. You're meeting in a council, you're establishing a lot of things. Uh, There's a little discrepancy with the last one, the 60th one, but it has nothing to do with what we're going to be covering. Be that as it may, there are 60 canons established. There are three that I want to share with you. Because look at what's happening as we continue through the 4th century here. Canon number 37 It is not lawful to receive portions sent from the feast of Jews or heretics, nor to feast together with them. Continuing on, it is not lawful to receive unleavened bread from the Jews, nor to be partakers of their impiety. I want to stop right here. It is amazing that there was a gentleman who made a a comment, and he, he just didn't know better. But he made the comment and basically said, there is really no evidence that Christians continue to keep the Sabbath or that they can continue to keep the feast. Really? Why are they making canonical law? When you get together, understand something about the the councils. When the leaders get together, they're dealing with issues of the day. The issues that they're being confronted with. And guess what? They still have a problem because there were still true, authentic Christians, Jew and Gentile, keeping the feast, keeping the Shabbat. And they weren't going to have it. They were not going to have it. That's why they're addressing this. Now, let me show you this third canon. And this is the one of particular interest for us. 
Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but they must work on that day. Rather, honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. You could not possibly use any stronger language against the Shabbat than you just used right here. It's the mouth of the dragon. And he's actually said, who does this sound like? We covered him, Ignatius. Sounds just like Ignatius who said, oh, if you dare rest on the Sabbath, you are idle, idle. These are the, this is the, the, the mouthpiece of Pharaoh. And here, they're actually making it Christian law that you are forbidden from work and from resting on the Sabbath. You have to work, no matter what God says, because God commands the exact opposite. See, that's how you know this is the mouth of the dragon. And then he says, and then if they can, on the Lord's day, resting then as, here's the term, Christians. Unfortunately, that term has been twisted upside down because the true Christians that were called Christians in the Bible, they were resting on Shabbat over and over again. You look at what happened here and you can clearly see that Hasatan, he is moving in for the kill. The devil knows something. I want you to pay close attention. Just look at the attacks. He knows the power. He knows the reality. He knows the meaning behind the Sabbath. And so he moves in to take it completely out of authentic Christian hands, out of their heart, out of their mind, out of their observance. And I'm going to tell you right now, the enemy Christians, if you're, I mean, if you're watching live, whatever the deal, you're just watching this video at a later time, Christians, the enemy has come and taken from you. He has come to steal what is rightfully yours. There is something about the Sabbath that the devil absolutely is scared of, that he is fearful of. There's something about it that he hates, he loathes. And so he comes out violently against it. And he does it with seduction. He does it by taking the precious and holy name of Yeshua, Jesus, and putting that name over paganistic practices. As though now it's sanctified. Now that's okay. Come and worship me. Let me take you to a modern day work known as the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. And the reason I want to take you here is I want to show you just how impactful that decision that we just read uh, that came out of Council of Laodicea, show you how impactful it is into the modern day. I mean, this came out in the early 1900s, okay? Before we get into this, let me preface. I love Catholics. I love Protestants. We're to love them all. And this is this in no way what we're covering here as a direct attack against anyone who is a Catholic or who is a Protestant. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about just going in, looking at the history, looking at some of the things that have happened in Catholicism. And we're going to even get into Protestantism. And so if you're a Catholic, this is not a personal attack in any way. God is a gracious and merciful God. This is not an attack against the legitimacy of your heart of where you are at and you're just trying to serve the Lord the best you can, that's not this. All we're doing is we're taking the light out of the basket. Put it on a lampstand, amen? Listen to what this has to say. Question, 
which day is the Sabbath day? Well, the answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. It's very simple. I mean, this is the first thing, little baby steps for us. What day is the Sabbath? There's no debate, not even in Catholicism. There's no debate. Okay, we move on. Go on and I ask the next question. Well, why then do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church with the Council of Laodicea transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. If you understand what was just said, they're saying the Catholic Church, that council at Laodicea, they literally stripped the holiness from Shabbat and they moved it to the day that she saw fit. And again, I'm going to keep saying this. When I read the Bible, there's only one that can call things holy and unholy. There's one, and that is the God of Israel. He has the power to do this. This is frightening to see men attempt to wield power and authority that only belongs to God. I mean, that scares me. Independent, working independently of the Lord. And yet this is exactly what's being asserted. Further evidence, we go on to doctrinal catechism. Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept? What a question. Where is this authority? Where where you get this, right? To institute festivals of precept because there's no question she has done that. Well, the answer, had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day of week. A change for which there is no scriptural authority. No scriptural authority. And I'm telling you, you can't find it. Go through just on your own. Read. Try to find where it was changed. You will never find it because it doesn't exist. And even the Catholic Church has come in and said, nope, there's no scriptural authority. We're doing this in our own power and authority. But they, they bring some clarity to the table here. How prove you that the Catholic Church has the power to command feasts in holy days? Answer? By the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday, which Protestants allow of, and therefore they finally contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. And this is an amazing statement. You, you know the whole feud that goes on between Catholicism and Protestantism. This is, this is, this is you know, the Hetfields and McCoys. And we know this. But here's the problem. The Catholics are over there scratching their head going... None of this makes sense. We understand that you broke off from the church. We understand that you went away. But explain to us why you're still keeping precepts that only can be substantiated on our power and authority. How do you do that? How do you answer that? Protestants aren't answering that. It's horrible. He's crying. He goes on. Well, how prove you that? Answer, because by keeping Sunday, they acknowledge the church's power to ordain feasts and to command them under sin. And by not keeping the rest of the feast days by her command, they again deny, in fact, the same power. Think about what was just said. This is exactly what I just communicated to you. They're totally and utterly confused. Plain talk of Protestantism today. It was the Catholic Church, which by the authority of Yeshua HaMashiach, has transferred this rest to Sunday in remembrance of the resurrection of the Lord. Thus, 
the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is a homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the Catholic Church. The actual verbiage used here is chilling because they're saying by the Protestants, though they reject us, make no mistake, they are paying homage to us, worship. How? By embracing the very thing that she has commanded as a festival precept, Sunday, Sabbath. So you just think about these statements. You think about what we're up against. Uh, It's as scary as it gets. I'm going to close with just, as I get to the uh, battle cry here, I just want to close with, with a little analogy And it's just interesting. I'm just going to throw this in at the end. I haven't given it much thought, but I'm going to do it. Uh, You know, as a youngster, I was just getting into my teens. We lived in, my family lived in Florida. And we lived, we we lived, uh, you know, there was actually lived in Florida multiple times. And uh, we lived across the the way of the ocean, right across the street from the ocean. And I lived in the ocean as a kid. I mean, it's just growing up. I lived in the ocean. This is what I did. And uh, my parents loved to be there. And so we just, as a family, that's just what we did. Um, it was interesting. My parents, they, they were really, I didn't have any fear as a kid. You know, I was a young man. I was going to conquer the world. Nothing could stop me. I'm invincible, right? And so uh, literally running around alligator type of stuff, craziness, okay? But my parents told me something one day. It was really interesting. It, and I remember it was like, Daniel, you got to stop. You, you're going out into the ocean too far and you don't understand the power of the ocean. You do not understand that there is an undercurrent. There, there, there's an undertow. And people have died. They've literally been taken under, swept into the deep abyss and died. And so I was just like, well, that's, that's nonsense. I'm just thinking to myself, of course, I didn't verbalize it. I'd like to keep my head where it is. But <laughs> I did not verbalize. But I'm thinking in my head, oh, it's just blah, blah, blah. That I, and here's why. I'm looking at the ocean as they're whispering into my ear. I'm looking at the waves. I know that it takes all my strength just to get out there because I'm fighting the current coming in. I'm fighting all the waves coming at me. And it takes a lot of work to do that. And I know that when I ride the wave back in, there's all that force coming. I didn't see. There's no undertow. I don't see it until I experienced it. And then I realized, oh my, and I thought I was going to die, you guys. I never felt such power, such force to take you out. And, and I mention this because, you know, the reality is, is many people are looking how they, how it can be that all thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians, they're confessing Jesus as Lord. And they come into the knowledge of the seven, they start looking at this, but then they look back and say, well, they can't all be wrong. I'm going to tell you something. You do not depict truth by looking with your eyes at what others are doing. You depict truth by going to the word. That, that's how you depict truth. Now, having said that, are there many people that are riding the waves in? They're being brought to shore. They have truth. They have knowledge. Yes. That doesn't mean there isn't a secret, unseen undercurrent going on in that very same church to take people out into the middle of the abyss, to kill them. And that's what I'm telling you, and that's what this is. So many people, Satan has come in to blind them on this. How is that possible? I still, all these years of going through this, I still 
can't get my arms wrapped around how this could happen. How this could possibly happen where we're just writing off one of the Ten Commandments, the only one that says remember. It's crazy stuff. Let's rise. We are going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And we all say, today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. And we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray the prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.